Hello, this is Brian Lane, lead pastor of Fam Church, and this is our podcast. We are taking a break from the series on James as we started a three-week series called Game of Thrones this last Sunday. The Game of Thrones is something that followers of Jesus face on a daily basis as we are constantly battling with forces that want to take Jesus off the throne of our life. So good morning once again and welcome to FAM Church. It's exciting to have everyone here and we are starting our new series, Game of Thrones. And I'm really excited for this series. As I said a couple of times, I haven't been watched the show. I haven't watched the show as I've been told that it may not be the best thing to watch. Um, But the title says so much. It speaks so powerfully into our walk with Jesus because, because it just... We're going to get into that in a second. So let me just run down uh, some basic information about the show. Okay, it's set in the fictional Seven Kingdoms, and there are three storylines throughout the show. The first one is about the Iron Throne of the Seven Kingdoms and follows a web of alliances and conflicts among the noble dynasties that are either vying to claim the throne or fighting for independence from it. The second storyline focuses on the last descendant of the realm's deposed ruling dynasty who has been exiled and is plotting a return to the throne. And the third story follows the Night Watch, a brotherhood defending the realm against the fierce people and legendary creatures of the north. And when you read a description of this actual Iron Throne, it sounds like a horrible thing to want to sit on, especially if you're a king. They say it's massive, ugly, and asymmetric. Okay, it's a throne made by blacksmiths who hammered together half-melted, broken, twisted swords wrenched from the hands of dead men or yielded up by defeated foes. So it's a symbol of conquest. And there are literally thousands of swords that make up this throne. Okay, so it's not a comfortable place to sit. Nobody really says to themselves, I'd like to get up and sit on a bunch of swords, do you? If you do... You have issues. I'm just telling you that right now, okay? And um, it's not at all what we think of modern day when we think of sitting, sitting on a throne, is it? What kind of idea pops into your head when I say, you're going to sit on the throne? You're going home to the toilet, right? And I was hoping when I was reading that description, I said the word throne, you thought of a toilet, and you thought, man, that would really hurt to sit down on. Because when you sit on your throne at home, you sit there, and how many of you get out your phone, and you find a game, and you start playing your game, and then pretty soon, the next thing you know, your legs are starting to tingle because they're falling asleep? Anybody done that? No? I did that once with Angry Birds. I don't know, it was years ago, I was playing Angry Birds, and it was like, also the next thing I knew, my legs were asleep, and I'm like, are you kidding me? So anyways, um, so, um, and so that's, uh, um, I'm getting myself lost. You guys just aren't, you're not, you don't find this toilet humor funny. Is that something that I should strike from the, you don't enjoy toilet humor? Okay, Linda does, I'm glad. Okay. All right, so in this show, they are not chasing a throne to sit on to play Angry Birds or Candy Crush. Many of them want their families to be the ruler of the kingdom. They want their father or son to sit on the Iron Throne and rule the seven kingdoms. They want to be king of it all. 
And what those of us who follow Jesus should see in this story is that it's a story of our walk with Jesus because our life is a game of thrones constantly looking at and trying to figure out and determining who is going to sit on the throne of our life. And sometimes when we look at our life, we take the big capital I, me, and we place I, me on the throne of our life. At other times, we maybe don't place I, me on the throne, but we place Satan and his legions of demons who are coming from the outside, who are whispering in our ear, who are trying to speak into our life to try and gain control so they have power over our lives from that throne. Then finally, there is Jesus and the Holy Spirit who wants to sit on the throne as well, and he wants to, from that throne, uh, move your life forward so that you're doing his work, his will, and his kingdom. And when you put all of these things together, what ends up happening is the throne of our life becomes kind of this battlefield, this place where war is constantly being fought between these three parties to ultimately have control of the throne of our life. And it has huge consequences to it. It's a battle that has the power to determine the destinies of many people's lives, including our own. All right, so for this series, we are going to look at the life of a guy named David. We're going to look at a specific event in his life. And who David was, was he was king of Israel about 3,000 years ago, and his life is a story of this battle for the Iron Throne. Uh, there are times that God sits on the Iron Throne of David's life, and then there are other times where Satan sits on the throne, and then there are even other times where David sits on the Iron Throne of his life. And we're going to be reading about some events that Generally, when I've read this section before, I've kind of just skipped over it. It seemed like a weird, a bizarre, a strange sort of thing to include in the text because some of the things don't make sense. But when I started researching it for this message, I discovered some very interesting things and, and, and exactly what David did wrong here. And it's really interesting. And so to start off with this morning, before we talk about David, how many of you in this room like to feel important in life? You want to be the cool kid. No? No one? You want to be hip. You want to be in. You want people to walk up to you and go, dang, you are awesome. Anybody? You want your coolness factor to be off the charts. I mean, I think we can all relate to that. And, you know, I've gone through periods of my life where I've felt this exact same thing. And uh, uh, one of the times uh, happened when I was a kid, and they had this story for uh, my birthday party, but they chose not to tell it. I don't know why, because I think it's kind of humorous. But uh, when I was about 10 years old, what had happened was is a couple of my friends had started getting stuff stolen, okay? Uh, it, was, it was like toys, stuff like that, stolen out of their yard, stolen out of their garage. And, uh, and so they were coming and saying, hey, man, somebody stole stuff from me. And so me wanting to be cool, me wanting to be the one that everybody goes, dang, you're awesome. I said to them, I said, you know what? My dad is a cop. I will tell my dad the cop this, and we will investigate said crimes. There was only one problem. My dad was not a cop. And the weird part about it was is I've known these kids since I was like little. And so they should have known my dad wasn't a cop either. He worked for Northwest Airlines. But they went with this anyway, okay? 
And so I went into my bedroom and I set up my desk like a little police station and I was doing research. I was interviewing uh, witnesses. I was talking to people in the neighborhood, trying to figure out who stole the toys from my friends because I wanted to get to the bottom of this. I would call my friends up and I would give them updates as to the investigation and what we were finding in the investigation. And it was all going along smoothly until I gave one of my friends an update and he went to his mom and he said, hey mom, this is the update that Brian gave me in regards to the investigation into my stolen stuff. Well, the mom knew my dad was not a cop. And so the mom called my mom and that put an end to my investigation really quick. And David, in what we we're going to read this morning, he did the same kind of thing. He did what I did when, he, when I was 10. He decided that he wanted to look kind of cool. And he wanted to know how cool he was. So we're going to be reading in the Old Testament book of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, it's somewhere in the middle of the Old Testament, so if you're unable to locate it or don't feel like putting in the work to locate it, I will have it on the screen behind me. Um, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 14 uh, of chapter 21 in 1 Chronicles, and uh, this is what it says. <clears throat> Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan. Then report back to me so that I may know how many are there. But Joab replied, may the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over. My Lord, the king, are they not all my Lord's subjects? Why does my Lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of fighting men to David. In all Israel, there was 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword, including 470,000 in Judah. But Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. The command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Then David said to God, I have sinned greatly by doing this. Now I beg you to take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I am giving you three options. Choose one for, of, of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies uh, with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord. Days of plague in the land with the angel of the Lord ravishing every part of, ravaging every part of Israel. Now then, decide how I should answer the one who sent me. David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. All right, so here's what we've got going on here. David, he's just hanging out in his pa palace, you know. Who knows what he's doing? He's maybe watching Netflix. How many of you got your Netflix bill this month and saw the price went up and was ready to cancel it? That was me the other day. All right, um, he may be playing his PlayStation. Perhaps he was cutting the grass, practicing karate. We don't know what David was doing. He was doing whatever kings do when kings chill in their castle, okay? And then he's sitting there, and what happens? Satan rolls up on him and starts to whisper in his ear. Has anyone ever had that happen before? You're just hanging there, chilling out, and all of a sudden, Satan rolls up and wants to stick his business where he ain't got no business sticking his business. 
And he tempts David to go and count all the fighting men in Israel. And I said to myself, this is a really weird temptation, isn't it? Go count the fighting men in Israel. Why? I mean, we count things all the time. Does that make counting things a sin? We count our army here in the United States. Is that wrong? We count our population by taking a census. Is that wrong? We count how many people are here on a Sunday morning in church every week. Is, is this wrong? Is counting things wrong? That wasn't the problem. The problem was that David, uh, the, the, the problem was is that how he counted the men and why he did it in the first place. These are the two issues. And so let's talk about how he did the counting. How David did the count was he sent out Joab, the commander of the army, to count all men in the nation. And I got to say, this has to probably go down as the worst job ever. Has anybody ever had to count a large amount of something? Like you had a garage sale, and you had all these $1 bills, piles of $1 bills after your garage sale. You know, you're up there, you're 1, 2, 275, 276, 277, you hit 300, and then something distracts you for a second, and you're like, wait a minute, was I at 300 or 400? Crap! I got to start all over. And so you got to pick the money up and start over. Or you do that with like M&Ms in a jar, you know, you've you're, you're got this contest. Uh, guess how many M&Ms in the jar? And you have to count it like 15 times because every time you count, somebody walks in the room and asks you a question, you completely forget where you're at. I mean, m the picture in my head is this, them going through the land and going, oh, dude, was that last person 234,700 or 234,900? Gosh, we got to start all over again, and they got to go back to the beginning. And so this is why this would go down as the worst job ever. Some of you may enjoy counting like that, but that would drive me insane. But here's the deal. When it came to counting the men who serve in the military, God had prescribed a method in the Old Testament on how to do that. You're saying to yourself, that's got to be crazy. Yeah, it is. It's found in all of those books that we generally don't read because we find them so boring and can't understand them. You know, part of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's in there, and in those books we find that there are certain men who are not eligible for military service. Who were these guys? Those who had recently become engaged were not eligible for military service. Those who had recently built a house or those who had planted a new vineyard were not eligible to serve in the military. So I can imagine whenever there was recruiting going on, suddenly people would be getting, there'd be a lot of engagements, you know. Uh, there, there'd be lots of houses being built and vineyards being planted, right? Um, plus... Um, those who were considered ritually unclean, according to the Jewish law, were not allowed to serve in the military. There was a cer whole ceremony that they had to follow where they took a coin, a half shekel, and they would go to the temple and there would be a box there. And they would have to take this half shekel coin, drop it in the box, thereby proclaiming to the Levites, the priests, that, uh, that they were in fact clean and then could go serve in the military. Okay, and then on top of that, David wanted him to go out and count the Levites. The Levites, as I just said, were the priests. They were the ones who served God in the temple all around the land of Israel. They were exempt from military service because, one, God wanted his worship to continue when the army was off fighting, but two, serving in the military and fighting in combat and killing somebody made people unclean, and he didn't want his priests to become unclean. And so David, in his count here, basically looks at God's rules, looks at God's regulations, and says, you know what? 
bump what God says, them are some stupid rules. I'm going to see if I can build myself an army, an army that will strike fear in the nations around us. See, David wanted to be able to puff out his chest, look at the countries around him and the people around him and say, my army is bigger, badder, and bolder than your army ever could be. We've got 1.1 million men in our army. He wasn't concerned with any of these quote-unquote rules that God had about putting together his army, and because of that, it gave Satan the opportunity to whisper in his ear and then allowed him to creep in and grab a spot on the iron throne of David's life. Which brought a whole bunch of other problems, not just for David, for the whole nation of Israel. And the nation of Israel had to go, to go through a plague because David gave Satan the opportunity to have access to that iron throne in his life. And here's the thing, for many of us as followers of Jesus, we kind of do the same thing that David did. See, we will look at what God says in his word. We'll look at what he says uh, all throughout the scriptures, and we will decide which things are worthy of us following and which things we are not worthy of us taking our time to follow. We'll rationalize it. I mean, think about David. I'm sure David's thoughts were this. I mean, he'd already had an affair had a child with the woman he had an affair with, had the woman's husband killed. And so I'm sure he's thinking to himself, bro, I've already committed adultery and murder, so breaking this rule is probably not that big of a deal. But what also happens with us as believers of Jesus, we go the other way with this as well. Instead of saying that, we'll look at it and go, man, I don't do those big things. I don't commit adultery. I haven't killed anyone. God doesn't really care about these little tiny rules here. He's just concerned that I'm holding on to the big rules and not breaking those. See, those big rules tick him off, but some of the other, these other things are no big deal. He'll ignore it because it's not important. But what we need to realize is that the little things give Satan just as much access to the iron throne in our life as the big things do. Plus, for some reason, we all have this desire in our life to get as close to sin as we possibly can. I think many believers feel that they're missing out on life because God doesn't want us to sin like everyone else, so we push it to the edge and get as close as we possibly can. See, with me, before I was a Christian, I really liked the taste of tequila, okay? I loved the taste of tequila. We would, me and my, me and my friends, we'd go to the bar and that's what I would drink. And i got to tell you, there's times when I'm sitting here in life and I'm looking at my life and I'm saying to myself, man... You know what I could really go for right now? Instead of sit, you know, doing whatever, I'd rather be on the beach taking shots of tequila. And what people will do is, and I, and I don't, I haven't done that, okay? Just so you know, I haven't gone to the beach and taken shots of tequila. Uh, although, we were at a wedding yesterday afternoon, and they had all these bottles of tequila, and I was thinking about this message because I'd already written that, and I was like, ooh, is that temptation? Did I speak that out? And so now Satan's throwing tequila in front of me. Anyway, I don't know. All right, but so, so what we'll do, though, is we'll push that right up to the edge. We'll say, you know what, I really like it. We'll take a shot of tequila. We'll say to ourselves, just as long as I don't get drunk, I'm okay. 
I'll get as close to the edge as I possibly can without going over. How many of you, when you show up to a place that there's a giant cliff, walk right up to the edge of the cliff and go like this? Yeah, most people don't. Now, to be honest, I will. When we get to a place where there's a cliff, Dana will usually say to me, don't go near the edge. Because I just think it's such a rush when you go up to the edge of a cliff and just kind of do this because you're looking, it's like, oh. Anyway. But see, we won't do that. But a lot of times when it comes to our walk with Jesus, we'll build our whole spiritual life right there, teetering on the edge of a cliff, just hoping something doesn't happen to push that house over the edge instead of building it back a little further and creating a boundary between us and the edge so that we do not go over the edge. And that's a dangerous place to build our house. See, when we use that kind of rationale and logic, we are really opening the door for Satan to whisper in our ear. And when he whispers in our ear when we're standing this close, it doesn't take much to knock us over the edge. And when we allow him to get access to the iron throne of our life, once he sits down on that throne, it is super difficult and challenging to get him off of there. He doesn't give up easily. And see, some of us struggle in our walk with Jesus because we make the determination of how we want our walk with Jesus to look rather than letting Jesus define what that walk should look like. And when we do that, we are setting up our iron throne for a takeover that could lead to a war. Let's not give up like that. Let Jesus define what following him looks like. The second thing that I see here is that I think David was willing to give up, the second thing that I see here, the reason that David was willing to give up his iron throne was to make himself feel good. You're saying to yourself, well, what does that mean? Let's run through a brief history of David's life before, we get, before he gets to this point. We already mentioned that a few years before that, he'd had an affair. Uh, then the lady got pregnant. Uh, she was still married. So he had her husband killed um, to cover up the affair. Um, and then after that, after the husband was dead, David had the woman move in to the palace with him. He married her. This child was born to her and him, but unfortunately, it didn't live. The child died not too soon after childbirth, and that's a lot to go through in life when you've been through something like that, but it didn't end there from David. See, after this, he had one of his sons rape one of his daughters. Then another one of David's sons, Absalom, decided that because David wasn't going to do anything about the one son who raped uh, his sister that he was going to take matters into his own hand. And so he invited uh, all of David's sons over to his house. And in the middle of a dinner one night, he stepped out and he killed the son, or he killed his brother who had, uh, who had raped his sister. And after he did that, he decided that David wasn't worthy to sit on the throne as the king either. And so he decided to raise up a rebellion against his father. And so he rallied the people around him. And he formed an army, and pretty soon he was chasing David and his armies from Jerusalem. He, matter of fact, he went through the whole countryside chasing after David, trying to kill him because he wanted the throne so bad. It just so happened this guy Absalom was riding along on a donkey, and he walked under an oak tree. And I think about this story, and it's, it's, it's hilarious, but yet it's very tragic. He's riding his donkey, looking for his dad, trying to kill him, and a branch of an oak tree comes like this into his throat, and his donkey keeps on walking. And so he's just hanging there. 
And all of a sudden, David's troops come wandering along, find Absalom hanging from a tree, and they kill him. David's back in Jerusalem. Once again, he's defeated the rebellion. But just a few months after that, Sheba rises up, and another rebellion forms against David. So, I mean, just picture this. Picture this as your few years. Like, let's say the next three years, this marks your life. I'm not wishing this upon anyone. You have an affair. You kill the, <laughs> you kill the other person's spouse. You don't go to jail because you're the king. Okay, um, um, the baby that you have with this woman dies, or this man, whatever. Uh, then all of a sudden, uh, one of your sons rapes one of your daughters, kills the son because you won't do anything about it. And this is, this is just your life. And I'm sure David was in pain and hurting and aching. And he was just saying to himself, man, I need something in my life to go good. I need something in my life to go the way that I want it to. I'm sure he was crying out to God, God, just throw your servant a little bone. I just need a little bone. Something that gives me joy, something that gives me peace, something that gives me hope. And because David didn't see that, because Satan knows this, he knows the king is feeling down, he knows the king is feeling bad about himself, and so he uses this as an opportunity to go to David and begin a Game of Thrones battle in him. Because as a king of a country, what better way to feel good about yourself than how many men and women or men are serving in your army? Having a big army actually shows how powerful you are. Having a big army shows how tough you are, how good of a leader you are. Every king wants a big army, and David had over a million men that could be part of his army, and that was big back then. It made David feel good about himself. It made him think that even though things have been horrible the last few years, he still got it. I've still got a million men that can serve in my army, and so I've got that going for me. No one can mess with me, so I feel good about that. And we do the same thing, right? We like to feel good about who we are. And a lot of times in life, life does not communicate good things to us, right? Life is not warm and fuzzy. Life is more like sitting on the iron throne with a bunch of rusty swords stabbing you in the butt, right? It doesn't go the way we planned. It doesn't go the way we intended. David, I mean, he screwed his own life up by making some really dumb decisions. And sometimes, yes, that's us. We make really dumb decisions and we screw up our own life. But many times life just deals us cards and we get those cards and we pick them up and we're just like, man, I don't want to play these cards. I want different cards. God, can you deal me a different hand? And when we get into that spot, I feel like we are vulnerable. You know, we have problems and issues at home. Our finances are not going the way we expected, and they're a constant struggle. Us or a family member has an illness we didn't expect, and it's going to take more than some bed rest and soup to get over it. A loved one passes away unexpectedly, or maybe you struggle with depression and anxiety, and we just look for relief wherever we can find it in our life. And so we'll look for something good regardless of whether or not God says it's a good thing or not. We'll go after that thing regardless of whether or not God says it's a good thing to go after or not. Because we just want to feel better. But when we try and feel better like that, we create a playground for the enemy. 
It's a playground that the enemy can come in and mess with and toy with and shake up and mess around. And it gets us into a spot where he'll take advantage of that and he'll jump up on the iron throne of our life. And starts, and once that guy has a foothold, he'll start a bloody and painful war against us to hold on to that throne in our life. See, this is why a guy named Paul wrote Ephesians 4.27. He said, and do not give the devil a foothold. See, he knows that giving Satan just a foothold, a little spot to plant your foot. I know probably, I don't know if anyone in here has ever climbed rocks before. I really have kind of done those rock wall things. And they give you these little tiny things that stick off of the wall maybe this much. And that's your foothold to plant your foot in when you climb up the wall to try and make your way to the top to ring the bell or whatever they have at the top for you to reach. And when you think about it, you've got this little thing that's maybe two inches long and an inch wide holding your entire body up. That's all Satan needs in our life. He just needs a little bitty inch to put his foot on and he can start clawing and climbing his way up our life. And he's going to make it way worse in our life than the pain and the hurt and the struggles that we're trying to forget about. See, medicating our pain that we experience in life with anything but Jesus is a dangerous game to play. There are so many people that just look for something to deal with their pain and their hurt on the inside, whatever it is. Some people will turn to more benign things like food and eat a lot of food. But other people will turn to more hardcore things, alcohol, drugs, and that sort of thing. See, those things we use to make ourselves feel better, those things that we use to medicate our pain serve as a foothold for Satan and only cause more pain and give access to the iron throne in our life to somebody who should not have access to it. That throne needs to belong to Jesus and Jesus only. That should be his stronghold in our life. And so we need to do what we can to defend our iron throne, to defend that throne over our life from the forces of hell that are coming in to try and take it. So to start off with, in order to keep that from happening, we've got to be people who do not dictate to God how we will follow him, but instead let him speak to our lives and follow him in the way that he has asked us to follow him. Because when we get into any other place, when we do anything else, all we're doing is opening doors to that iron throne. If God has said no, don't do it. If God has said yes, do it. It keeps those, and it, we're not going to live this perfectly, I realize. We're, we're going to fall short, but we've got to work hard and concentrate to make sure that as we follow Jesus, we're listening to his voice and putting our foot, making our walk where he wants us to walk so that we can avoid as many situations and controversies with our iron throne as possible. 
And then we can't let how we feel in life because of the cards that life deals us give power to the, to the enemy coming in against that throne either. See, our feelings do not dictate our relationship with God. They don't dictate anything in our lives unless we let them. Instead, we need to let God rule and reign over the circumstances in our life. See, we're going to find challenging circumstances, yes. But as long as we let God rule and reign over those circumstances, it's going to protect our iron throne and keep him in that spot in our lives where he is the one who's ruling and reigning. Thank you for joining us on the FAM Church Podcast. FAM Church is here to connect people to Christ. If you live in or are visiting the Lakeland, Florida area, we would love for you to join us on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You can also check us out online at myfamchurch.com. Thank you again and have an amazing day.